Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 25. The Stowaway I stood on the deck by myself to get a good view of our departure from Liverpool. Everything had happened so fast. I thanked my lucky stars that I'd bumped into Alf Reeves. Was it only the night before? I did wonder briefly what my family would think when I didn't return to Cambridge, but on balance they probably weren't going to be surprised. Maybe I'd send them a postcard. It would be hard, I thought, to make much of an impression on the Carnot organisation if I was technically using it to hide from the man himself, but it was a big step up on Poverty Corner, that was for damn sure. The aspect of this whirlwind of events that was making me most excited and apprehensive by turns was the imminence of seeing Tilly again. She'd been friendly enough on the Astoria back in the summer, but I also remembered Muriel Palmer's reedy voice saying, "'Don't they make a lovely couple?' Would we be friends again? How, if she was always with Charlie? I couldn't imagine he was going to be pleased to see me, or to see Stan either, for that matter. There was a decent crowd to wave the SS Oceanic off, and as we eased away from the quayside, I noticed quite a few people laughing and pointing and nudging their neighbours. I looked down, and there, a couple of decks directly below my feet, I saw a head sticking out of a porthole. Some fool was clowning around, pulling faces, pretending that his head was stuck, turning this way and that. Somehow, while people down below were hooting with glee, he managed to rotate his head right around so that he was facing straight upwards. There must have been a piece of furniture right beneath the window inside his cabin, or else I couldn't imagine how uncomfortable he must have been. Suddenly he caught sight of me, peering over the rail above. "'Ah, Arthur, there you are, my boy,' Whimsical Walker called out plaintively. "'I wonder, could you come down and help me out? I really am most inextricably stuck!' He was as well, and it took me and a sniggering steward some considerable time to free him, which we eventually did by squashing his ears flat with a spoon. "'Well, there's a lesson learned!' the old man chuckled. I looked around at his cabin, where he'd begun to unpack several full-scale variations of his clown costume. "'How many pairs of silk stockings have you brought?' I said. Two dozen, all colours, some patterned,' he said. "'You're never going to use them, you know.' "'One never knows what adventures may befall one,' he insisted. "'And America knows me. I could hear the clarion call at any time.' we travelled up on the boat train to Liverpool together without seeing any of our colleagues thus far. Alf reckoned it would be for the best if I didn't meet up with everyone else at the fun factory just in case Carno himself happened to be lurking around there and I was happy to go along. It had been Alf's idea to offer Wimmy a job as well. I've known him for years, he said, and I know he's funny, and if the governor sees a well-known name like that appear on his roster it's liable to distract him from asking any questions about this Arthur Smith who was also sneaking along for the ride. Good plan, I had said. But do I have to be Arthur Smith? It seems so ordinary somehow. When we get to America, Alfred muttered, you can be whomsoever you like. I really am most grateful to Alf for this opportunity, Wimmy said as he put on a tie for dinner, although I have to say the pay is the worst I have ever accepted. A little later, the two of us made our way to the dining room, where we met Alf Reeves near the double doorway. 
Ah, there you are. Welcome, Wimmy. Let's introduce you to the company, shall we? Walker inclined his head graciously, and Alf led us over to the little group of tables occupied by our colleagues. Everyone, this is Mr Whimsical Walker, who is joining us for this tour, and Arthur, I believe many of you are already acquainted with. I stepped out from behind Wimmy, and a roar of surprise went up. Stan leapt to his feet, beaming all over his face, and threw his arms around me. Freddy Jr. was not far behind. "'I saw an Arthur Smith on the list, but I never dreamed it was you,' Freddy cried. "'No,' I thought, because if Alfred told you, then you might have blabbed it to your dad. But I grinned cheerfully, and then leaned over to hug Amy, too. "'That's my wife,' Alf explained to Wimmy, "'and those excitable young guns are Stan and Freddy. Then here's Bert Williams, Charlie Griffiths, George Seaman and his wife Emily.' Wimmy stepped around the table, shaking hands, and I followed in his wake, greeting my sometime boxcar chums. "'This is Mr Edgar Hurley and his wife Ethel. They're new to the company,' Alf was saying, and suddenly I found myself shaking the warm, soft hand of a raven-haired beauty, whose deep, dark eyes were openly weighing me up in what felt like a rather lascivious fashion, while her husband glowered at me from a couple of feet away. I blushed and moved on. "'Here is Annie Forrester, our new songbird. Just wait till you hear her,' Alf said, ushering us over to a shy, demure young girl who could hardly have been more than sixteen years old. She seemed like a child, especially next to Ethel Hurley, who was most decidedly a woman. "'And there is Billy Crackles.' This last named raised a large glass to us, and then immediately got on the outside of it, and it was plain to see that having him along would lead to considerable savings in red nose makeup. Then we came over to a table for two, a little apart from the ordinary mortals.' And finally, let me introduce Miss Tilly Beckett and our number one, Mr Charlie Chaplin. Charmed, Whimsical said, kissing Tilly's hand, while her mouth performed a perfect O of astonishment at seeing me there. Charlie's purple eyes bored into mine as he shook hands with the pair of us. Mr Walker, he said, and Arthur, so you are back. I am, I said. Well, I trust you will pay more respect to your number one than when you were last with us. "'Believe me, I shall be giving him exactly the respect he deserves,' I said, and his eyes narrowed slightly. "'Arthur,' Tilly said, standing to kiss my cheek, "'what a lovely surprise. I look forward to hearing all your news.' Alf guided Wimmy and me towards an empty table nearby, and Charlie watched me all the way, clearly seething. I suddenly thought I perhaps shouldn't have provoked him so early on. "'You don't think Charlie might try and spill the beans, do you?' I said. Alf thought for a moment, and then led me across the dining room to the captain's table. The captain himself, a portly bearded fellow in a spotless white star line uniform, dabbed his mouth with a napkin and got to his feet as we approached. "'Mr. Reeves, a very good evening to you,' he said. "'Captain,' Alf said, "'I wonder if I might ask a small favour. "'If I can be of any assistance at all, just ask,' the uniformed gentleman said. "'Anything for Mr. Carno. "'If any member of my party should think of sending our governor a wire, "'perhaps you could let me see it first, make sure they're not bothering him with trivia?' "'It shall be done, Mr. Reeves, it shall be done. "'I shall speak to the Marconi operator myself.' "'That should take care of things till we reach New York, anyway,' Alf muttered as we returned to our seats for our own dinner. "'That's the best I can do for you, and for Edith.' The SS Oceanic was a liner of the British White Star Line, a distinct step up from our previous converted cattle boat, and we were able to do the crossing directly to New York this time, rather than taking that long detour through Canada.' It took nine days, which was not quite as fast as it could be done, but nobody in the shipping business had the stomach for full speed that year, preferring to take things a little slower and post plenty of lookouts for icebergs. There was no frantic need to rehearse our turn en route, as we would arrive in plenty of time, so our afternoons were spent on deck. 
On one particularly lively sea day, I clung to the railings next to Tilly, while all around us our colleagues turned up their collars and tried desperately to hold on to their lunches. When I was in England, she said, I went to South End to see my family. Oh, I said, how were they? Gone, she said. What? No sign of them. A new family living in our house, no forwarding address. Goodness. What do you think happened? I did a little detective work, she said, and it seems there was an accident one night. You know how Dad had got it into his head that the Germans were going to invade by sea and they would land at South End? I remember, I said. They've been building quite a navy by all accounts. You don't think he was right, do you? No, no, I said. Their Kaiser is cousin to our king, isn't he? And the Russians are, too. If they have any disagreements, the three of them can sort it out over a nice cup of tea. Well, Dad was prepared, he kept saying. Well, he told you that, didn't he? A brief recollection sprung into my mind of Mr Beckett staring out to sea, a look of grim determination on his face as he said, When they come, we'll set fire to the pier, Mr Punch and me. All that wood, it'll go up like billio. I think he must have been keeping some dynamite in the Punch and Judy stand. He must have been going to blow up the pier, if, you know, push came to shove. And where the Punch and Judy stand had been, there was just a crater in the ground, with a sad little puddle of seawater in the bottom, till he said, becoming tearful. So what happened? Did you find out? An explosion. That's all anyone knew. At night, thankfully, so at least there weren't any children sitting there watching Mr Punch go up in smoke. That's the way to do it. I spoke to a bobby, and the prevailing theory is that some fool thought it would be funny to flick his cigarette end in there, a mark of disrespect for the old Punch and Judy man. And he got a surprise. He got his backside blown through his hat is what he got. How awful. Is Mr Beckett in trouble? He must be. They did a moonlight flit. No one knows where they've gone, she shrugged, and that's that. There must be something you can do, I said, but she shook her head sadly. Tell you what, when we get back to England, I'll help you. We'll find them. You'll see. Thanks, Arthur, she said, and gave me such a sad smile that I felt I would do anything to cheer her up. I glanced around, and in point of fact, the whole company were looking pretty fed up just then. The sea was rough, and Bert Williams was using his ventriloquist skills to make muted, retching noises appear to come from all over the deck, as though we were on some kind of plague vessel. I strongly suspected that he had a bet on with someone, the wolfish George Seaman, most likely, about who would throw up next. Charlie was sitting at the prow, hunched and sulking like some sort of malevolent goblin figurehead, and it was obvious he wasn't going to be doing anything to lift people's spirits. For some reason, my sea leg seemed to be more reliable than most, so I suddenly thought, hell, I'd do something myself. So I staggered into the middle of the triangular foredeck where the Carno masses were huddled, and said, raising my voice against the wind, "'Come on, everyone! Chins up! We're English, after all, masters of the seas! How about a good old sing-song?' Before I could even finish my spirit-lifting exhortation, the boat's bow plunged down into a wave, sending a freak spout of icy brine high up into the air to splash down onto me. Only me, I might add, drenching me right through to the bones and internal organs. Well, that cheered everybody right up. Stan laughed fit to bust, which set Freddy off, and pretty soon everyone was chuckling away. Even Chaplin managed a smirk. "'Go on, Arthur, you best get out of those wet things. You'll catch your death.' Alf said, the mother hen of the company, brushing tears of laughter from his cheeks. As I staggered through the hatch towards the stairs down into the belly of the boat, I passed a couple of stewards loafing around, sneaking a woodbine moment or two. One was tall and thin, and the other was shorter and bald. They were rather like Mutt and Jeff, and they sniggered nastily at my misfortune as I splish-sploshed wetly down the steep metal staircase, seething quietly to myself. 
Down in my cabin I stripped off every item of clothing I was wearing and squeezed as much of the Atlantic out of them as I could. I had fresh clothes, of course, in my trunk, but if I wanted to go back up on deck I would have to wait for my overcoat and shoes to dry out. Unless I poked my head out of the door. The corridor was deserted. I nipped along in my spare long johns and bare feet and tried the handle on the door of the end cabin, which was where the props and costume trunks were being stored for the duration. Open. Aha! I let myself in and began to have a bit of a rummage. At first I was just looking for a topcoat and shoes, but as I did so, an idea came to me. It began as a kind of tribute to my friend George Roby. I already had one of his trademark bendy canes, which he had given to me after I broke my knee, or rather had it broken for me, and a couple of quick daubs of charcoal makeup gave me his quizzical half-moon eyebrows. Then a get-up consisting of baggy trousers a size or three too large, a jacket that was too tight, the dishevelled dignity of a waistcoat, collar and bow tie, and battered shoes with one sole a-flapping, turned me into something halfway between the Master Roby and the stock Carno drunk. I jammed a bowler hat on top of my head, and as a last touch, glued on a little moustache to disguise my face. It was the work of no more than a minute or two for a Carno quick-change veteran like myself, and so those two skiving stewards were still finishing off their sly smokes when a strange shambolic figure began awkwardly climbing up the metal staircase towards them. Several times he seemed about to slip and tumble down again, but he righted himself somehow with his oddly bowed cane and continued towards them. As the figure neared the top, he whirled about precariously, and the taller steward lurched forward to grab him by the lapels and haul him to safety. "'Careful how you go there, sir,' he said, giving a sly grin to his mate as he straightened the fellow up. "'Wouldn't want to mishap now, would we?' Uh, "'Thank you, my man,' the stranger slurred, summoning up a battered old-world dignity. "'Now, I wonder if you gentlemen could assist me?' "'Certainly, sir,' Mutt replied, reeling back from a blast of the whisky mouthwash I'd given myself a moment earlier. "'What can we do to—' "'Sir?' I darted through the hatch and out onto the deck in search of my audience, and as I hoped, both the stewards followed me outside, anxious to make sure that this drunken fellow didn't topple overboard. My fellow Carnos all perked up as I hove into view, doing the drunk roll that we all knew so well, feet pointing at ten to two, leaning heavily on the bendy George Roby cane, suddenly careering off to one side as the boat tipped. The two stewards caught up with me, and I leaned heavily on the second one, Jeff, the shorter and bolder of the two, and gave him the benefit of my whisky breath too. "'Ah, there you are,' I said, letting my feet slide away backwards and then forwards again as I pulled myself up by his jacket front, a staple Carno move. "'Would you be so very kind as to help me to locate my travelling companions?' Jeff rolled his eyes at his colleague over my shoulder. "'Certainly, sir, if I can. What are their names?' "'Well, let me see. There's a splendid fellow by the name of Mr. Johnny Walker. Do you know him?' "'Johnny Walker?' Like the Scotch? I certainly do, I said. You're very kind. Make mine a double. No, I mean, the man sighed. I don't think I know a Mr. Walker. Oh, well, no matter, I shrugged. I'm sure you must know his friend, an American gentleman from Tennessee by the name of Daniels. Daniels? Precisely so. First name Jack. He frowned. Jack Daniels? Like the whiskey? I could hardly believe he'd served up the same feed line, but I was never one to look a gift horse in the mouth. "'Absolutely I do,' I cried. "'Make mine a double!' By now Mutt and Jeff were getting flustered by the obvious mirth of the watching Carno comedians, and they each grabbed one of my arms. I, however, was starting to feel the tingle of that particular energy that comes when you are on stage performing and everything is at your fingertips. The power was flowing through my veins now. 
Perhaps then you know my Dutch friend, I ventured, mine Herr Advocat, or my French colleague, ver, ver, splendid chap, goes by the name of Monsieur Cognac. Hoots of laughter now from my colleagues clinging to the railings, their mal de mer quite forgotten, and I was enjoying myself. The two stewards, however, were getting quite red in the face from all the attention and decided to assert themselves. I think we'd better escort you to your cabin, sir, the tall one said, grasping my upper arm quite firmly now. My cabin? I said. Yes, I think you could really do with a nice lie down, don't you? Good idea, good idea, I said, wrestling myself free and straightening my jacket. I'll tell you exactly where I have had the great good fortune to lay my head these last few nights. Where? Why, right here, I said, raising my cane and tapping the side of the lifeboat suspended above our heads. What? said Mutt. Here? You've been sleeping here? said Jeff, his brows knitting as he worked this out. Certainly, I said, prodding him in the chest. And let me tell you, the service has not been all that I hoped for. You've been sleeping in the lifeboat, the taller frowned. You mean to say you're... you're a... As my unwitting stooges finally put two and two together, I confirmed their suspicions with a perfectly executed, rumbled double-take, slapped the bowler down onto my head, and galloped off round the side of the boat, with the cheers of my colleagues ringing in my ears. The two stewards set off after me, of course, shouting, "Hoy!" and "'Come back here!' which only added to the general merriment. Not actually being drunk, and being relatively nimble, despite my dicky knee, I completed a lap of the vessel well in advance of my pursuers, and concealed myself behind one of those upturned horn-shaped things that had never quite worked out the purpose of. I tipped my hat chirpily at my colleagues, all of whom were enjoying the show immensely. Suddenly the first of my would-be captors appeared round the corner, and skidded straight past me on the wet deck right over to the railings. The ship heaved, and for a ghastly split second I thought the fellow was going to pitch over the side, but the power was with me, and I whipped my cane around and hooked it in the waistband of his trousers, hauling him back from the brink, and then I used that movement to deliver the momentum for my escape from his clutches once again. The Carno company whooped as one as I careered off on another circuit of the boat. The next time I came around I skidded to a stop, twirled my cane, and took my applause with a little bow. The bald steward appeared, red-faced and gasping in my wake. I dodged, punted him roundly in the seat of his pants, then kicked my heels in the air and set off again, ignoring the fellow's indignant cries. Halfway round another lap of the boat, I calculated that I'd pushed my luck just far enough, and indeed, up ahead of me, I could see that one of my pursuers had had the bright idea of changing direction to cut me off, so I ducked into a hatch and slipped back to my cabin, where I quickly changed back into my still horribly wet, unfortunately, previous accoutrements. I strolled back up onto the foredeck, where I had to hush the cheers of my colleagues lest they gave the game away. Indeed, the two breathless stewards appeared moments later, one from each side gangway, drawn by the racket. As they scratched their hapless heads in puzzlement, I said loudly, and in a very different voice, "'Well, what did I miss?' Tilly let go of the railings and skipped over to me, throwing her arms around my neck and giving me a big kiss. I was overwhelmed. What did this mean? Was she letting me know that her feelings for me were rekindling?' Then, as she broke away from the embrace, she managed surreptitiously, and rather painfully, actually, to rip off the fake moustache I had neglected to remove. Ah, that was it. Once the frustrated stewards had left to scour the ship for their elusive quarry, I enjoyed the congratulatory backslapping of my chums, their seasick misery temporarily forgotten. "'That stowaway character, that's not a bad turn, you know,' Stan said, his eyes still bright with mirth. "'Oh, you know, it was mostly Roby,' I said modestly. Oh, of course it was, and stock-drunk business, but there was a little something else, too. You should remember that, he said, tapping his head and then punching me on the arm. 
I looked over at Charlie Chaplin, and he wasn't laughing at all, not even smiling. And that's when I knew for sure I'd hit on something really good. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Chapter 26. A Fellow of Infinite Jest We arrived in New York once again and settled into our accommodations. Alf made his speech about moral turpitude once again, and actually it turned out that moral turpitude was given as a reason by the port authorities for denying a person, or presumably a whole theatrical company, entrance to the country, so perhaps Carno had a point. The next morning we made our way a short walk up Broadway to a rehearsal room to begin knocking our show into shape. While we waited for stragglers to turn up, and knowing how she felt about Carno's weakest offering, I sidled over and muttered to Tilly, I can't believe we're doing the wow-wows. Oh, but it's quite different now, she said. Different? Oh, yes, Charlie has transformed it, you'll see. He has devised lots more brilliant business, and there's much more for the girls to do. Just then, the man himself arrived, hair all over the shop in artistic turmoil, and Tilly skipped over to greet him, the light of a true believer in her eyes. Now a Carno company was a well-oiled machine with parts that worked together perfectly. It had to be. All the versions of every particular show had to be the same wherever they were, because you never knew when you would have to drop in a replacement part at a moment's notice. For that reason, a rehearsal was usually directed by the company manager, working from a prompt version approved by Carno himself. It seemed, however, that three circuits of the United States had left Charlie with a mighty sense of his own superiority. He was the number one, and the rest of us were nowhere, including Alf. So Charlie took the rehearsals. He treated us with barely concealed scorn, and dismissed any ideas we might venture as hardly worthy of consideration, and I began to feel, and I'm sure I was not the only one, that this company was not so much a carno machine as a mere support act for the brilliant genius of young Mr Chaplin himself. Sure enough, though, he had improved the wow-wows out of sight. The main character, posh twit Archibald Binks, was a much closer relative now to the inebriated swell of mummingbirds, which gave free rein to Charlie's whole gamut of drunken tumbles and spills, and as Tilly had suggested, he had also integrated the female performers much more eye-catchingly. The pièce de résistance now was a sequence in which the senior wow-wows demanded that Binks eat a whole packet of dry cracker biscuits without so much as a glass of water to help them down. 
This simple idea had generated a long-drawn-out funny spot for Charlie, who sat on a stool front and centre, chomping away confidently at first, but then more and more uncomfortably as his mouth filled up and he couldn't swallow. He insisted on demonstrating the routine in full for us, because he wanted to be sure that we practised presenting a deadpan facade to it. It was all facework to begin with, but then, as he turned to protest to his tormentors that he could manage no more, the clouds of crumbs that would fly out into the air were so unexpected and then so beautifully managed, with such matchless timing, that those of us who had not seen it before were in pieces. When it came to the rest of the sketch, however, Charlie proved a difficult taskmaster. He became frustrated very easily while trying to explain something, and would always end up demonstrating what he wanted himself, and then saying, There, just do it exactly like that. No comedy performer appreciates that sort of help, believe me. And when it misfired, Charlie would fly into a rage. No, 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 he would scream. How can you not be getting this? It is simplicity itself. Again, again. Everyone felt the rough edge of his tongue, even Tilly. Actually, I say everyone. In point of fact, he never flew off the handle with little Annie Forrester. She was such a fragile-looking little thing and sang her song like an angel, and Charlie was often moved to tears even in rehearsal. He would never fail to compliment her and do what he could to bolster her confidence and make her comfortable. Time and again Charlie would show him some little bit he wanted doing and Wimmy would nod genially and say, Got it? Good. Let us see it then. Oh no, don't worry. I have it. Up here. But I want to see it now. Oh, I never do a thing full bore until there is an audience. By now Charlie would be tearing his hair. Here's your audience, he'd shout, waving a dismissive arm at the rest of the company, sitting watching the fireworks display. Oh, but they all know what's going to happen. It's pointless doing it for them. What will we learn? Whether you know what you're doing, you old fool. At this point, Wimmy's feelings would be hurt, and one or other of the women would come over to comfort him. Meanwhile, Charlie would be kicking a chair at the far end of the room, while Wimmy explained, It's just a different way of working. That's all it is. Everything will be fine. He'll see. You'll all see. Nothing to worry about. Everything about Whimsical Walker seemed to rub Charlie up the wrong way. The old clown asked to room on his own, saying, I have particular habits which I would not want to share with anyone. Charlie seemed to take this as a kind of personal affront to his status, even though he himself could easily have afforded to do likewise if he were not so parsimonious. He never put the money he saved towards a round of drinks, neither, let me tell you that. And Wimmy's tales, his jests that set the table on a roar, everyone loved them but Charlie. Wimmy had been particularly taken with the stowaway routine that I'd done on board the Oceanic. It was essentially clowning, of course, but it was also a practical joke, which was his very lifeblood. Spoofing was what he called it, and many of his anecdotes were concerned with japes that he and his fellow members of a club, known as the Spooferies, got up to. Dan Lino, the sad, mad genius whose shadow was still cast over musical, even though he'd been dead for more than a decade by then, was one of the great spoofers, according to Wimmy. It was actually one of Charlie's proudest boasts that he'd appeared on a bill with Lino. The implication was that the torch of the great comics genius had been passed on to Charlie as the brightest light of the next generation, although this assertion rather flew in the face of the fact that this apparent meeting of the greats had occurred when Chaplin was barely ten years old and a virtually anonymous member of a boy clog-dancing team called the Eight Lancashire Lads. Wimmy, though, had worked in Drury Lane pantomimes with the great Lino for many years, had known him well, and Charlie was not pleased to have his own singular connection to comic history so comprehensively trumped. "'Well, you all know I have always been a dab-hand at training animals to perform,' Wimmy began one evening after work. "'I told you, didn't I, how I once trained a donkey to sing and we performed for Queen Victoria at Windsor?' 
"'Yes,' we chorused, for he had told us that one many a time. "'Well, the quickest learner I ever had was a gorgeous little poodle. "'It was my pride and joy, and one time it needed looking after, "'so Dan said he would take it to his home for me, and I could collect it later. "'So when I went round to Dan's the next morning, "'he gave me the box with the dog still in it, and he hadn't taken it out at all. "'I said, Dan, surely you have fed and watered the poor creature?' "'But he shrugged and said that I never told him to do any such thing, "'which, of course, I hadn't, because it was just common sense.' I reached in, and the dog was as cold as the grave and stiff as a board. Dead? little Annie Forrester gasped. Dead as a doornail. Dead as a dodo. Dead as clowning, a voice chipped in. It was Charlie, seething by himself over a port on the next table. Wimmy blinked, and then pressed on. I was so upset, but then after a little while, Dan put his arm around my heaving shoulders and said, Wimmy, look here, this is not your dog. It was all a spoof, a classic Lido spoof. Imagine going to the trouble to find a dead dog that perfectly matched my pet. But it is the trouble that sells the spoof, you see, because the poor Patsy can never believe that you would go to such lengths. At the end of the week we travelled to Cincinnati by train, and I renewed my acquaintance with that Carnot boxcar. The newcomers, like the Hurleys, were very taken with the idea of the company having its own carriage. I thought of telling them that it got old hat very quickly, but decided to let them enjoy swanking around for a while first. Whimsical Walker, however, was not so easily impressed, having travelled around in even grander style on previous tours. When I was with P.T. Barnum back in the 80s, he said, we needed three whole trains to move the show around the country. One was for the performers' sleeping cars, one had the tent and all the hands, and then the third was for the menagerie. Did I ever tell you how I was responsible for purchasing Jumbo the Elephant from London Zoo for Barnum and Bailey? George Seaman got his cards out, with that familiar predatory look in his eye, but it seemed as though Edgar Hurley was not going to be drawn in, in the way young Fred Palmer had been, and Stan too was keeping his distance. "'I've decided, whatever happens, to try and hang on to my money this time,' he confided. "'You are quite right about that. I'm going to work on a little nest egg.' "'Good for you,' I said." I glanced over to where our number one was glowering moodily out of the window at Pennsylvania rattling by, seemingly sat under a dark storm cloud that could break at any moment. Charlie's no happier then, I said, wandering over to Alf. Well, he thinks the governor is ignoring him, you see, Alf replied, keeping his voice low. Oh, and why is that? Because he thinks he wired the fun factory four times from the boat, complaining that you were hired without his approval. But he didn't, as it happens no. His messages were sent directly to the wastebasket. Aha! Uh -huh. Tilly was keeping Charlie company, and I was having to face the fact that the two of them were pretty thick together these days. I sat by myself, brooding on this, thinking maybe it would be for the best if I could just think of her as a colleague no more. No easy scheme, since she had dominated my thoughts one way or another since I first met her, dazzling me, teasing me, under the gas lamps outside the fun factory. My reverie was interrupted when Ethel Hurley came and took the window seat beside me. She took a moment or two, wriggling to make herself absolutely comfortable, until she ended up sitting right alongside me, our shoulders and thighs touching in a way that made me suddenly very aware of my own breathing. "'That's better,' she said. "'I could barely see anything out that side. This is much more interesting.' Ethel and her husband Edgar were new to the company, and so far I had not had a great deal to do with them. I'd noticed Ethel, of course, she could hardly miss her, for she was a very attractive woman, long dark hair, full-figured and with mischief and double entendre in her dark eyes. There was something about her, a look, that made you think she knew every single thing you were thinking, at least where she herself was concerned. What hardly seemed fair was that there was something about that look that made you think things about her that you wouldn't want her to know. 
"'Well now, Mr. Dando,' she said brightly, "'this is a nice chance for us to get to know one another a little better, don't you think?' "'Yes, indeed,' I said, "'and you must start by calling me Arthur.' "'And everybody calls me Wren,' Mrs. Hurley said. "'It's been my nickname since I was a girl.' "'Wren,' I said, "'that's nice.' "'Why, thank you, Arthur. "'Yes, I was such a tiny girl. "'I was a late bloomer.' "'I thought to myself, "'well, I could hardly help thinking, could I, "'that she certainly had bloomed, "'and that she was decidedly no longer a girl. "'She was a woman, and such a woman "'that she made the other females in the company, "'even the married ones like Emily Seaman and Amy Reeves, "'seem like mere girls in comparison. "'I didn't speak that thought out loud, "'but I had the impression that she heard it anyway. "'She leaned in close to breathe in my ear, "'and I was suddenly intoxicated by her perfume, "'her warmth, her closeness. "'These long train journeys are such a bore,' she whispered. "'But do you know the worst thing?' "'No,' I managed to mumble. "'That one still has to dress so decorously. "'It would be so much more tolerable, don't you think, "'if one could travel in pyjamas or a dressing gown?' "'Trees continued to flash by outside the window, "'but all my attention was focused on the firm swell of her bosom "'pressing against my forearm, which was quite trapped. "'This dress is so tight,' she breathed. "'Everything is so squashed up in there.' I stared straight ahead, trying and failing to keep from thinking of what was squashed up in there. You wouldn't be a darling, would you, and reach behind my back, undo a couple of little hooks for me? You want... I managed and then had to clear my throat. You want me to... My voice dropped to a whisper. Undo your dress. That's right. Be a dear, she said. I glanced over to where Edgar Hurley was flicking through a newspaper, not finding anything particularly interesting by the look of things. But you're... "'Husband is right there. "'I want you to undo it a little, that's all. "'Make me a bit more comfortable. "'I don't want you to undress me entirely.' "'Well, all right then, let me see.' "'I managed to free my arm, "'but not without a certain amount of barely appropriate contact. "'The fastenings behind her back were fiddly, "'but I succeeded in loosening them "'without exciting any attention from elsewhere in the box-car. "'Wren let out a deep sigh of satisfaction "'that seemed, to my increasingly fevered imagination, "'to contain a promise of sharing such sighs again "'in a more private context. "'Her husband was nearby, still grumbling "'and twitching his moustache at something in the newspaper, "'but that didn't stop Wren from sitting closer still, "'easing herself in under my arm, "'which had nowhere to go but around her shoulders. "'She chattered away then in a style "'that was simultaneously totally innocent and inconsequential, "'and yet somehow really flirtatious,' and I was sure she must have realised the effect she was having on me. Suffice to say, when the train pulled into Columbus for a fifteen-minute stopover, I was the only member of the company who didn't take the opportunity to get up and stretch his legs. <laughs>